On the new podcast, American Criminal, you'll learn about the fraud, theft, and murder that marks the dark side of the American dream. Like the Menendez murders, was it two greedy kids who killed their parents for money, or is there more? Listen to American Criminal wherever you get your podcasts. speaking you're listening to see here episode 81 as we're recording this it's january 2021 it's the start of the eighth year of this podcast and still it's only 81 episodes we're, we're very slack here but that's how we do things and joining me on skype all the way from bath is my colleague and very very close friend mr bernard stickwell hello there and we have a guest who has programmed this episode for us the host of the Iron Sequel podcast, Mr. James Lawrence. Welcome to the show, James. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you very much for being head. If you're new to this podcast, I should say we're part of the Pantheon Podcast Network. We discuss music-related films. James Lawrence discusses sequels, in case you hadn't gotten that from the title of his show, The Iron Sequel. So, James, just as a bit of an introduction for our listening audience who don't know the show, don't know who you are, tell us about The Iron Sequel and what gave you the idea to do a show totally devoted to sequels. Okay. I mean, it, it's a pretty clear-cut origin story for the podcast, really. I mean, it, it all pretty much came to fruition during the first lockdown we had in the UK last year. Obviously, the ongoing madness that is, uh, has taken over the world. I was just kind of sat around watching an obscene amount of films and, and reading books. And the idea came to mind that I've never really had to get up and go to, to, to host a podcast by myself because the podcasts that, that are out there that I've admired for, for many, many years are, are like hundreds of episodes deep. And it's a lot of work. And if, if I was going to be doing it on my own, do I have the contacts for a guest every single week? So the more I thought about it and the, the more I thought, yeah, let's just do it. So I bought a microphone and subject matter that's the big thing for a podcast you've got the equipment where do you go from here so i was going to initially base the podcast around italian genre cinema most notably the the, the kind of crime films the dirty harry ripoffs and so forth the films that i would have liked to talk on that would have been a bit too obscure they're not the kind of films you can go to hmv and just pick up a copy of so the other thing that came to mind was sequels because most of my favorite films are sequels of, of some form or another and i've never really come across a podcast that specifically covers kind of off-the-cuff franchises and, and the lesser-loved or lesser-known sequels. And, and that was the idea, really, because...
because it all came around from watching Predator 2, which I always say is the kind of the marker for doing the podcast was I just want to talk about how bloody good this film is and how underappreciated it is. So I started putting feelers out to friends and people that I've talked about film with for 10, 15 years, um, Bernie included, obviously, and just got a list of guests and it just went from there, really. Just completed the 12th episode, which was on Rocky Four, and it's, it's going really, really well. I found my feet. I know the formula for how to make it work. And it, yeah, it's, it's, it's just a lot of fun to do. There's always a lot of discussion about how sequels seem to be the bastard stepchildren of a story. And, oh, that was never as good as the original. And you're taking a completely different tack. You're saying that, in fact, sequels provide a whole bunch of joys that maybe the originals don't necessarily always do. Let, let's use Predator 2 as, as the example, because I, I think in terms of films from the 80s specifically, so your Terminators, your Predators, um, so forth, they're kind of held on on such a, a pedestal that anything that comes after it was always going to be, oh, it's not quite that, or it's not quite this. And again, with Die Hard as well, another example, yet the films that follow, and it, it seems to be a template that has you know, been laid out throughout Hollywood since the dawn of time is if you're going to make a sequel then it obviously wants to be bigger and better off a film that's had so much success commercially and, and home video etc that we're going to pump a bit more cash into this get more stars and yeah sometimes it doesn't work because there is that magic that, that is lost but if you look at Predator for example it's taking the story of an unearthly creature coming to earth and going toe to toe with this Superman but in the sequel it places it in a setting of LA with rival gangs and there's just an unlimited amount of action your hero isn't a Superman it's just a kind of cop who's a fish out of water and he's up against the elements but he knows the streets better than this alien does and it it just makes for, for my money a more entertaining film and that to me is a success story of up in the ante but then you've got on the flip side where films kind of go through the mixer of when you get down to the three and the fours in the kind of run of films so like Death Wish 3 for example and it's clear that Bronson's just got a payday it's a good vehicle for actors starting out like Alex Winter and the plot is just basically an OAP vigilante that just goes around slaying everybody at will all it takes is the most smallest event for it to kick off and then he's just got this obscene gun going down gunning everything in sight and it's those are the things that those are the kind of films that i'm also drawn to as well that kind of how was this been made kind of sequel and um it's just such a an open world to just jump into and have fun with it certainly seems to be especially through the vhs age where it's a case of someone in production thought oh well we think we know what it is that the audience enjoyed about the first one or the second one let's keep doing that and then they probably miss the point always it's the same with everything isn't it it's, it's especially within music when a band has a success the pressure is on then to the next album's got to be better the next album's got to be better and, and so forth and it, it's, it's funny just watch the history of the eagles recently and you know what whether you love or hate that band when you make an album say as hotel california that's the zenith you are never going to top that and the, the pressure to to do something as good if not better is just impossible and it, and the, the product suffers because of this and that's a, a story on so many sequels and obviously we're in the heyday now of, of reboots and reimaginings because it's just rinsing that brand that name down to its kind of last breath I think that's the thing as well with a lot of the more sort of longer running franchises from the uh, I guess you know 80s 90s you think like Friday the 13th or your Hellraisers or you know even stuff like Children of the Corn I think um, it's not necessarily about how can we top the previous film a lot of the time it's well we've got the rights to the name and it's visible and there's a good chance if we put something out with that name or brand on it we 
will at least make our money back, if not more. And sometimes that can actually lead to some really weird, interesting movies. A lot of time it can lead to crap. But Children of the Corn 4, let's bring all <laughs> these Amish devil children uh, into the <laughs> urban city and see what happens. You know? One of the best examples in recent years, well, if Christ is nearly 10 years old, is, is Universal Soldier Day Reckoning. And oh, sure, it's, yeah, yeah. I think in terms of action sequels, I think there's, there's a bit of a lapse, say, when you get around to about three. But it reinvents itself. Every film, there's a reinvention. And it just it's not taking the law and ripping it apart and starting from scratch. It's just adding and adding and adding and mm. you get someone like John Hyams behind the camera and obviously from a, a well bloody cinematic family and just puts a spin on it that is I was kind of a bit aghast <laughs> when I was watching it because it takes such a bizarre turn they're the kind of sequels that you want is like say yeah. a reimagining but adding to folklore if you're that well into it Alien is another one that's has probably suffered from studio tinkering more than the, the actual source material being good to work with where would you stand on something that looks like it had there was a plan all along to make four or five films in a series so like I'm thinking something like Battles Without Honour and Humanity and I don't quite know the history, I don't know whether that was planned but it looks to me like it was always planned to be a series of films and the others do follow on from each other but I don't know, are they sequels or they just, we're breaking this one big story up into multiple parts That's a a really good point that you make I've never really given it much thought if I'm being brutally honest, I'm just taking looking at it as if, if it's a film in a series of films that's great but the idea that like you say there are certain films like the battles without honor and humanity and the newer ones further on down the line that Mm, mm. takes one story breaks it down whereas i tend to find a majority of the films that i've talked about so far is just kind of the next step in the film instead of a because there's always that break in continuity but i suppose with asian cinema as well you're keeping the same core and cast but whereas money comes into it you need more effects you need bigger stars and that's when you start to get a bit of a a muddled picture of of what a, a series or a sequel is yeah there you go economics dictating over art the flip side of of something like halloween 3 which was going to be almost branching off a brand name and doing something completely different so you were going to have halloween in the background as the halloween film series with halloween 3 being a new anthology taking the name and doing something different but again if it's not going to make money they're not going to do it and you know we all know the story of that film it flopped but now it's a you know a, a beloved classic all right well at this stage we should probably talk about what we're going to be uh, focusing on for this episode now james you selected a film that is not a sequel in fact to the best of my knowledge is the only film for this series you selected 1994's film the stoned age we'll be coming back in a moment to talk about this film we'll play the trailer first and we'll be back to drink our schnapps and get our cowbells out. You're listening to See Here with Morris over here, Bernie and James over there. Every Saturday night, all they do is the same old thing. So you got a plan tonight or what? I got a radically hellacious plan. Fit the jack just to take the edge off. Get those chicks all horn dogged out. What chicks? Hanging with the buds. Check it out, man. It's Dak Meister. Hang a loogie on it. <laughs> Searching for a party. What's the ratio here, man? It's like 35 to 3 out here. Staying out of trouble. Are you going to boogie with the foxes tonight? Now, if you want to get these chicks in the mood, shake it, man. I need some ID. Looking for some chicks. Let's party. 
but tonight they're about to face their greatest challenge. Whoa. She's so cherry, man. It hurts. Man, I'm gonna scorch my shorts. Man, we got chips! And you guys better not be here when he gets back. Are those, um, real poopy shells? Let's go. No, she ain't even naked. Damn, you kicked his ass. They're like a pack of wild dogs. They're probably out there right now playing in the ice tray. Don't be so paranoid. They're not that lame. Attention, Holigan. Assume the prone position. What the hell are you doing with my daughter? Man, these are our chips. Come here, you think the chick's gonna go for it because you got some Ox 45? These are talls, man. The Stone Age. Hey, so where's your friend? What? You guys wanna take a number? She's hot for me, man. Yeah, then you woke up. Back from break, Morris here in Melbourne, Bernie in Bath. James, I'm not sure where you are. Are you in Bath as well? No, I'm in the northwest of England. I'm on the Wirral, if, if anyone knows where that is. It's just near Liverpool, just near Chester. Nicely tucked away. We're here to talk about 1994's The Stone Age. Before we go into the details of the film, I just wanted to say that I'd like to dedicate this episode to a very close friend of the show who sadly passed away late last year, Mike McBeardo McPadden. This film is praised in his fantastic book, Heavy Metal Movies. If you can go back through the archives, we did an episode with Mike. He was a sad loss to the podcast world. And this is the sort of film which I think if he'd still been around, we would have invited him to join us as a quartet for this. We dedicate this to you, Mike McBeardo, and please go out and search out his excellent book, Heavy Metal Movies. Might even refer to a a couple of points that he makes in this terrific book about the film as we go along. But yes, anyway, we're here to talk about The Stoned Age. Came out in 1994, directed by uh, James Malconian. To the best of my knowledge, I think he only made one of the film. Stars Michael Coppolo and Branford Tatum as the two main characters, Joe and Hubs. Let's quote IMDB as we like to do. Joe and Hubs are a pair of rockers who are on a quest for chicks. This is the tale of their adventures over one night. Yeah, more or less, less or more. So we've been known on this show to occasionally cover a film that is not necessarily specifically about music or musicians, but it's still culturally in our brief. And I think this certainly qualifies for that. So, James, this is your pick. What's your history with the Stone Age? Well, it's, it's funny that... <laughs> I get invited onto a music slash film podcast. If Bernie and myself had recorded our episode of my podcast literally two to three weeks earlier, we'd have been talking about something completely different. But um, <laughs> the, the film isn't about Blue Oyster Cult, but there is a through line 
through the film, which is the Blue Oyster Cut track, Don't Fear the Reaper. The film and, and my love of the film came from the fact that it's a film in some way, shape or form about Blue Oyster Cult. And they're such a fascinating band to me that I don't think they've ever really been given their kind of due in heavy metal, hard rock, say the likes of someone like Thin Lizzy or, or to a lesser extent Metallica have because they, they're the kind of foundation for a lot of American rock bands that, are, that have got success beyond their, their years. And they've, they've always been to me like a bit of a, a thinking man's heavy metal band because, or hard rock slash heavy metal, because they always pick a theme for an album, whereas a band like Nazareth or something will just have a hit after hit after hit, but Lois are called, if there's a hit in there, that's great, but there's a series of songs where there's a theme about whether it be about aliens or, or spaceships or something like that. It came from My Love of Blue Oyster Cult, and, and when I started doing deep dive into, into the band and just kind of trying to find whatever I could possibly watch live about them or documentaries, of which there aren't really any, and this film just popped up, and I think it was on YouTube, and it was all because of Don't Fear the Reaper. I think it was Don't Fear the Reaper synced up to certain scenes from the film and I've got to see this film so I did as much digging around as I possibly could and had to get it through I think there was like a US bootleg DVD cost me an extortionate amount to get and and just kind of fell in love with it it's almost as if it's the underbelly of Dazed and Confused that's kind of seen as this period through rose-tinted glasses but I think this gives a bit more of a realistic view of just guys and and girls and music and and drinking Bernie had you seen this one before? I hadn't I'll I'll be honest uh, when James mentioned it I I had not even heard of it it was a real blind spot for me so first time viewing no history at all with it I liked it I warmed to it as we went through I started off a little unsure and I mean just seeing the trailer as well I was a little uncertain I enjoyed it it's, it's interesting you mentioned Days of the Confused and I'm sure Morris is going to mention it at some point later so we'll, you know, we'll talk about that when we get there but I can sort of understand the Days of the Confused comparisons but at the same time I think this is actually quite different and the intention was quite different when you told me Bernie that you'd invited James onto the show and that this was his pick I went and searched out the trailer and maybe this is a good argument against watching trailers as much as I love watching them but my first thought was oh no what are we going to do? <laughs> I was thinking, we're going to be slaughtered, hung high here in 2021, talking about this film. And then I thought, okay, no, watch with an open mind, watch the film. Huge relief. I really, really, really enjoyed it. I think I'd also said to you, Bernie, and maybe this is what's going to get me slaughtered, is that I'm not a fan of Dazed and Confused. I watched it first a few years back, couldn't remember what it was that I disliked about it. So I thought, right, I'm going to watch it again. So we have some comparison points and there are probably other films that this is uh, would be a better double bill with than Dazed and Confused superficially it's got stoners in it but that's really I think about it Dazed and Confused itself is like an updating of American graffiti and that would be a double bill with that there's moments in this where I sort of think more of Wayne's World excellent excellent that's exactly yeah. what I, I would have said I was going to say if you look at the gap between this and Dazed and Confused as well um, Dazed and Confused came out in September and 93 and this came out in february 94 so that's not a massive gap what's that like four or five months so the the idea of this actually being shot or promoted well but perhaps promoted but certainly i can't imagine it was written and shot as some kind of cash in on days the confused i suspect they were just independent things going on at the same time i heard an interview with michael coppolo who plays joe the nice guy of the film 
And he was saying that, in fact, this film was the final realization of a student film. I'm not sure. I can't remember if it's from UCLA. That was made in 1991. The short film was called Tax Chicks. There you go, right. <laughs> so, in fact, this story had been hanging around since 1991. And that's not to say that Days and Confused hadn't been in gestation for a long time. But the chances are of James McConian. Yeah. Sort of saying, oh, I'm hearing about this film that they're making about 70s stoners. Yeah, I think I can do the same sort of thing. It's a coincidence. But as we all know, every decade seems to be looking 20, 30 years back. And it's a big thing. So in the 70s, they were looking back at the 50s quite a lot. You know, the, the two of the big films, American Graffiti, which I've just mentioned in Greece and The Wanderers. So what was the one with Henry Winkler and Sly Stallone? The Lords of Flatbush. Lords of Flatbush. So the 70s was all about looking back at the 50s. The 80s were looking back at the 60s with a huge number of uh, Vietnam War films and the aftermath of that. And then in the 90s, it just seemed to be a thing to look back at the 70s. So one thing I wanted to say about this film, despite the fact, yeah, they got the long hair and yeah, there's all this 70s music, but it never really looked to me to be like a 70s sort of film. I mean, you, you looked at how mm -hmm. maybe people were getting dressed and wearing their hair in the early 90s with grunge. And also with Wayne's World in mind, you know, where these guys were worshipping those same sorts of bands, it took me a while before I realised, oh, is this supposed to be set in the 70s? Oh, okay. To be honest, I would not have even realised that. And, then, you know, I read a few things about this and then it was only through that I realised that it was actually supposed to be set in the 70s. Even, you know, there's a scene where, uh, and uh, I'm sure you appreciated this, Morris, Joe's 8-track machine chews up his copy of Focus. LP, yeah. I thought they were just being retro. Yeah, exactly. Even, even at that point, yeah. I didn't twig that this was set in the 70s and they were playing an 8-track. I thought, man, they just got a really old car. It doesn't really actually give anything away in terms of time signatures. I mean, Blue Eyes Scott is still touring now, so it wouldn't be that far out of the realms of possibility that it would be late 80s or and even like you say the fashion choices for the, yeah. the kind of hippie chick that ends up rocking up that's just looks like a grunge outfit to me it doesn't look 70s i wonder if it was like a a budget thing perhaps because this is obviously a, a sort of this would have had a fairly small budget i assume yeah. so i wonder if just you know the, the process of actually trying to set dress a film to make it look like the 70s probably just was not really viable for the amount of money they were spending on it either that or they just weren't that concerned with with it i don't know i think that possibly part of the reason why we didn't realize that this was a 70s film until maybe very later on or maybe reading about it is because of the context so dazed and confused to me is a film that trades very much in nostalgia. The Stone Age doesn't look to me to be a film that says, wow, how great was our world before mortgages and kids and dinner parties took over. And very much in Dazed and Confused, you get that character Pink, who at the end of this film where they're all wanting to get laid and they're all 
doing all these horrible things to each other. And that's another problem that I have with Dazed and Confused. But by the end, Pink is just sort of like thinking, well, you know, these are going to be the days that I remember and I know that I'm going into an uncertain future, which was pretty much what American Graffiti was doing by the end. But it seems to me that that film was made for people who'd lived that. The Stone Age... I mean, I'm sure that there are a lot of people who watched it and thought, yeah, I can identify with that, but you don't need to be someone who lived through that to appreciate it. And the thing which I find particularly abhorrent about Dazed and Confused, you know, the early part of the film where all these characters, they're going into whatever they call it, junior high school into senior high school in America. And part of the ritual is this horrible thing where they've got to get these paddle boards and just got to accept that they've got to be whacked over the arse. And sorry, we never did that here. It's not something that I have any sympathy or empathy with. And yet the film sort of presents, with the exception of one character, that's just accepted as, well, that's just what you go ahead with and that's just what we do. And hey, weren't those great days? And I just look at that and I think, well, you're all a pack of assholes. That's just just <laughs> pretty, pretty fucking horrible. But it's pretending to be, hey, this is a nostalgia which you should feel some level of fondness for. The Stoned Age never goes down that path and because it doesn't look to me nostalgic, it once again, it's a film that doesn't really sort of wallow in its 70s-ness as it were. And it's just, it's a goofy film that's not pretending to be anything more than just an enjoyable film about friendship and yeah, it has its problems, certainly if you're looking at it with sexual politics from a 2021 perspective, but I'm just sort of putting the glasses on saying, looking at this film from when it was made and enjoying it in its own light. Its own context, yeah, yeah. I rewatched The Stone Age last night and in my head, I mean, you've made me question certain aspects of it now in terms of comparing it with Days to Confuse, but there does seem to be a major comparison for myself between the character of Joe from The Stone Age and Pink Floyd from Days to Confuse because... Like you say, Days and Confused is looking at things through rose-tinted, wasn't the 70s cool man, idyllic glasses, we're all going to go off to college and get our dream jobs, and the Stone Age is more kind of living in the now with the individual. But the two characters, this pretty much stems from the end of Days to Confused, where, you know, Pink kind of isn't following his path, he's he's going to go off and watch Aerosmith, and, and Joe is constantly banging on about this Blue Oyster Cult gig that, you know, had such a profound impact on his life. We saw BOC at Long Beach, and when they shine one of those lasers, man... Right on me. Big whoop. Nah, man, it was rad. I mean, they picked me out of the whole crowd. It was right when they were doing that solo. Don't Fear the Reaper, it was a rush. All the other characters are just kind of going their way, but there are two characters that are all about the music, and, and that's one thing that, that sticks out in both films for me, is that there's a true love for the period and the music as well, whereas Hubs is the kind of jock who's, in 10 years' time, isn't going to be listening to Blue Oyster Cult or Metal anymore. He's going to be doing whatever the next fad is, but Joe and Pink are going to be those guys who are going to be there, the, the fans till the death, the true music fans. The characters in Dazed and Confused, maybe aside from Pink, I sort of imagine that a bunch of them are going to grow into the Patrick Batemans. You like Huey Lewis on the news? Yes, 100%. 100%. Ten years later, they're they're going to be the high-flying corporate lawyers who may not necessarily want to be reminded of the music that they listened to or how drunk they got at the time, but their inherent nastiness is already there. They're not going to necessarily look back with fondness on the music 
or hanging out with their friends, but they're sort of going to recall, hey, you remember the time that we whacked those juniors? We chased them around in our cars and whacked them till they were blue on the ass all summer long. So it's interesting you bring that up because, I mean, that's absolutely a, v- a valid point with the uh, Dazed and Confused. But um, I did find with the Stoned Age that other than Joe and Jill, and, to you know, to be honest, you have to get to a certain point with those two characters, but there aren't really any likable characters in this. No. no. <laughs> e- everybody is kind of an asshole, self-serving, thoughtless, just idiots, basically. And and to be honest, Joe is like that for at least part of the film, but you do slowly see him come round. And Jill is almost like that initially. And, you know, the the Hubs character and Lainey, who's kind of like, you know, the, uh, the chick from the Virgin Killers album cover. <laughs> <laughs> you look like that, that chick on that Virgin Killers album. They're just awful. They're awful people. It's interesting. And I, I think that what makes the film quite entertaining and interesting is the way that from you not generally liking anybody into it, uh, Joe and Jill, they gradually come out of it at the end as actually being sympathetic, interesting characters that you're kind of rooting for a little bit. The thing with Joe is as well, he's, there's obviously the, the kind of intimidating aspects of Hubs. So he's kind of got sure. to toe the line and try and be the big man when it's clearly not in his nature. You can just tell that those guys have been friends like since they were five or six years old and Hubs has always beaten up on Joe. Yeah, he's just been the dominant yeah, one. Yeah. I, you know, I'd say another good film to compare this to, so we've been sort of going on the Days and Confused line because that seems like the obvious one. But with this film, I guess probably another comparison would be Animal House. You've got your characters, I think it's the Delta House who are the slobs, so it's all these guys who are hanging around the party that oh, wanted yeah. to drink the schnapster and and, <laughs> and get the ox tolls. And you've got the, the Omega house, the rich guys who look on them with disdain. And once again, so this film seems to me, and I know Bernie, you're going to chastise me saying you're reading too much into it, but the, this film is, is brings the class distinction as well as the story about friendship within the class. And Hubs and Laney are your narcissists. Joe and Jill, they're wanting to look more after each other. Yeah, I just sort of thought that Animal House, also a particularly good comparison. You know, two goofy films. And Animal House could have wallowed in nostalgia, but it's not trying to be. It's just a goofy film that happens to be set at that late 50s, early 60s period. Mm-hmm. Did you spot here as well when they go to the kind of uh, jock frat boy party? The guy that opens the door is, uh, is Jake Boozy, isn't it? Hey, sorry, Space Case. Hey, Muldoon. It's cool, man. Oh, it ain't cool, Connolly. I didn't buy beer for a bunch of you burnouts to come here and drink. But you go party with your own kind. Well, the yeah. teeth. <laughs> and I just got to say as well, fact fans, that. Jill is played by uh, China Kantner, who is the daughter of um, Paul Kantner and Grace Slick. Don't you want somebody to love? Don't you need somebody to love? Wouldn't you love somebody to love? You better find somebody to love. And she's actually the baby on the cover of the uh, Sunfighter album, isn't she? Right, right. Yeah, it's funny. I was watching this, thinking, "Oh, I know that's China Kanna. Why do Why does she look really familiar?" And then she looks just like Grace Slick, doesn't she? Yes, she does.
I mentioned before Wayne and Garth is probably a more apt comparison for these two characters. And Wayne and Garth are like the more polite version, maybe the more, I don't know, you wouldn't call it family-friendly version, but, you know, Wayne and Garth are the middle-class versions of Joe and Hubs. You know, neither of Wayne and Garth are stoners and neither of them are assholes like well at least hubs is and joe starts out to be in this film you should clarify morrison that they're aimed more at a middle class audience i wouldn't say they were middle class characters well no I, I actually would i mean certainly with wayne we see here wayne is doing a tv show from the basement of his parents house in middle class where is it was it chicago they're in aurora illinois well I there reckon. you go so the same state certainly wayne is polite okay well you know they're both genuinely lovable. You have to work hard to like Joe and Hubs. You feel guilty for liking them, certainly in the first half of the film. But one f- scene that I thought was a really interesting comparison, the f- opening scene of The Stone Age, where, which also has a nice symmetry in its own film, is where Joe puts on the 8-track cartridge of Don't Fear the Reaper and Hubs is taking in to task for listening to the pussy song. Let me tell you something. Every band puts out at least one pussy song. But you'd never catch Wayne and Garth arguing over Bohemian Rhapsody or anything else for that matter. If Garth were to say, hey, I like Peter Frampton, I'm going to put on Show Me The Way, Wayne would say, oh, really? Oh, yeah, okay. Their friendship is a bit tight. There's not this alpha male, I'm going to beat the shit out of you for your taste. But they definitely share a similar sort of relationship. And that driving around, well, they're not quite looking for chicks, are they? But they're looking for for good times. You make a good point of the the car at the start and putting Don't Fear the Reaper on because that kind of, again, feeds back into the fact that all the musical choices when they're driving around come from Joe. He's the one who's in charge of the music at all times. And that, again, makes me feel that, that Hubs is just the guy who looks the part, dresses the part, speaks yeah. the part. Um, he's just after the partying and the chicks. But at the end of the day, this is a film about the music and there's someone who cares about it more than the other one. Whereas, like, say, Wayne and Garth, they're, they're always in there together. It's like a bit of a, a bond. For Hubs, it's about the sex and drugs. And for Joe, it's about the rock and roll. Absolutely. Yeah. It's a lifestyle for Joe. This is, this is it. But uh, like you said, yeah. James, earlier it's yeah whereas hubs is just a uh, twat <laughs> <laughs> I wonder how many back in the day, well, I suppose it still happens now. I mean, I remember back at school in the 2000s and we had the kind of new metal rise and there was always the kind of, well, we wouldn't call them jocks. We'd, we'd have called them like scallies or, or something where yeah. we were, but they were always kind of flirting with getting into this music that we were like, hang on a minute, like, this is ours, what are you doing? And um, like, even back then, it was jocks are taking an interest in this music because it's a gateway to other things being like the yeah. partying and, and girls and drugs aspect to it. So, there's always that you know wolf in sheep's clothing aspect to some of these characters in films it's interesting you bring that up because it's you can talk about um i mean you know we're all certainly morris and myself are old farts here 
but you, you can sort of talk about youth cultures and uh, and youth tribes particularly and how you don't really seem to get that anymore I guess the kind of you know post new metal you had the sort of emo type tribe didn't you but now it just seems like all the edges are kind of sanded off and everything's blurred together a little bit so you know if you're a 14 year old now I mean when we were 14 years old we were defined by the kind of music that we listened to and that defined the sort of youth tribe we would have associated with or been identified as part of but now you, you just don't get that because 14 year olds listen to everything now because it's just it's all out there I guess too bloody diverse yeah I, I guess it is in, in a way it's I don't know it's interesting isn't it I mean you know being I keep saying the phrase youth tribe but being you know I, I was a goth when I was a teenager <laughs> yeah I know it's an important time in your life and belonging to a certain group who uh, you enjoy similar music or you look similarly or you have similar thoughts and ideas about whatever it's an important part of your kind of socializing and uh, learning how to interact with people and people of your age as, as you're sort of moving across that threshold from childhood into adulthood I don't know I just feel maybe that's kind of lost these days it's certainly different but what do I know I'm an old fart that's kind of one of the or, or how I ended up getting into Blue Oyster Cult was because it wasn't necessarily a oh here's Blue Oyster Cult because I've always known about Don't Fear the Reaper it's, you know it's a pretty well known track yeah. um, but I never really bothered to seek out any of their other albums so it was on like a, a greatest rock album of all time disc and then obviously when you get to a certain age and like you say everything kind of blends into one and it's where do I go from here I'm after some kind of newer music and mm. it's when I started getting into kind of doom metal and, and stoner metal and then you kind of dig a bit deeper and you kind of get into the 80s trad metal stuff like Manila Road and Surathungal and then it's like oh well even in the 70s it wasn't just Thin Lizzy and, and Scorpions you can go sure, well, yeah. UFO. It, it was almost like an organic process of just wanting to go off the beaten path a bit but then kind of coming full circle if that makes any sense mm -hmm. and yeah you just like you say when you get into a band it almost becomes a bit of an obsession with me where it's like I have to consume all their albums and, <laughs> and watch all their live things and yeah that's how it kind of came to be coming back to the point you made before Bernie about tribes one of the films that we covered a few years ago on the podcast we got to speak to the director Jeff Krillick about heavy metal parking lot within this 20 minute film that completely said everything about groups and tribalism and being joined at the hip for your love of music and then but i can't remember was it we found out that years down the track it's is it tiger man the guy who was in the is it tiger man or leopard man the, no it's zebra man isn't it oh zebra man yeah zebra yeah, yeah, man. yeah he was like yeah i'm not into the music so much these days i you know i kind of like country some country stuff and you think my god you were like living and dying for priest 10 years ago <laughs> well, you sort of got to wonder whether the characters Joe and Hubs were based on anyone in Heavy Metal Parking Lot. I mean, that film was doing the rounds as a VHS tape on tour buses yeah. and the like, so I refused to accept that James Malconian hadn't seen this, hadn't seen Heavy Metal Parking Lot, because... I mean, maybe, of course, he knew a lot of those sorts of people, so it's not just an academic thing that he's watching that film and saying, all right, I'm going to base my characters on that. So he probably had a lot of friends who are like that, but I'm 
convincing must have seen that film because that personified in 15 minutes perfectly the culture and the tribalism the perfect distillation of what we're talking about isn't it so i think uh just catching a whiff of that almost is going to influence what you do further down the line you know you talk about tribes bernie as well and within the stone age you kind of got the jocks who have the party you've got those three girls you've mm-hmm. got the i don't know what would you call them heshers i think that's what you yeah, call that's them. a pretty good term the, yeah yeah the groups of guys just drinking and even in heavy metal parking lot as well all these people in and all these different fractions like yeah the jocks might be into priest and and this that and the other but you've got priests in heavy metal parking lot and blue oyster cult in the stone age and they're all unified by these one concerts where it didn't matter what tribe you were from you're kind yeah. of there for that experience and, and yeah, even yeah. in the flashback to don't fear the reaper you've got hubs just kind of like he's even though it's a pussy song sorry as he so eloquently calls it um he's kind of there getting into the groove well so that that's definitely a good point about the tribes that even though they are the tribal aspect they all come together at, at one point yeah yeah something brings them all together i i love that when you actually you know they refer to that concert where uh, Joe is is zapped in the, uh, in the in the head by a laser beam at the Blue Oyster Cult show, and how it kind of changes his life, changes his perception. And w- when they actually show it later, towards the end of the film, they actually, you know, they obviously got the rights from it was Columbia Records, wasn't it? And they actually cut in concert footage of Blue Oyster Cult, and then it cuts to a, a very obviously shot somewhere differently kind of audience scene yes. of uh, Joe and Hubs and a bunch of other people digging on it. So uh, I, I thought that was pretty amusing. Completely different film stock. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. That was great. I want to come back to that concert because there's a great parody in there. <laughs> um, but I just wanted to sort of divert to a couple of characters in the film, not major characters, but a, a couple that really made the film just brought a different level of enjoyment for me. So one of them is the uh, actor Taylor Negron. I'm calling Disco Stew. He's on the credits as, as himself, though, is it? When you're actually watching the film, it says Taylor Negron as himself. Oh, really? Oh, my yeah, God. But he's, yeah, he's also listed as, like, Disco Guy and various other things, isn't he? Right. <laughs> so for those of you people who haven't seen this film, and maybe we should elaborate a little bit more as to what goes on, but at one point where our two main characters, they go as underage to a bottle shop to procure alcoholic beverage of choice that they think is going to enamor them to one of the two girls that they're trying to get it on with. You're such an old man, Morris. <laughs> I'm trying to think, what's the way that I can say this in 2021? After listening to songs like, you know, uh, uh, Paranoid by Black Sabbath and the like, they go into this bottle shop run by Taylor Negron and he's gone the whole disco shirt, the open shirt, and he's playing Disco Inferno. So maybe that should have been the 
the hint that this was actually made. Yeah, yeah. thinking about it, no, that's That's kind of a giveaway, isn't it? Having one culture sort of pay respects to something from 20 years ago is one thing, but having someone else pay their attention at the same time to a different culture from the same period, yeah, it should have been a giveaway. But anyway, we're we're a bit slow because we're old. Anyway, so he's one of the comedic highlights of the film to me. He's uh, this sleazy guy behind the counter. 151. Are you going to boogie with the boxes tonight? You know how it is, bro. Do with the Lanny Green Springs. The sexies love it. I know, thanks, man. You're lost, because I'm having a special. Now, if you want to get these chicks in the mood, make them move. Put them on the floor. Do the hustle. Put a little insanity on your potato. Shake it, man. It'll make them melt like a popsicle. And it reminded me very much of... I mean, it was a different sort of character, but the scene reminded me of that moment in Eating Raoul. You know what? Cock ring. Oh, cock ring! What size? Hey, get the latest issue of Nuns and Nazis. Tuesday. What size? Uh, medium, I suppose. Is it for you? Medium will be fine. Sure. Okay, your vibrator started at 1095 and go up. We've got the salami, the man of war, and... Alien. He reminds me very much, but a, <laughs> a little, a little more sleazy and a little less out there. But telling a grunt, he really fulfilled his part. And one thing I read about him was that he did a comedy course run by Lucille Ball. Now that's a great, really? that's a great pedigree there. I mean, very much different, but he obviously had great comedic chops and great comedic timing before the the cops come into the into the bottle shop and he switches like that like a light switch from being the sleazy guy dancing to disco inferno to saying i need some id yeah <laughs> it's a great comedic moment and i know that this film has its naysayers but i would say watch this this is great comedic timing there's plenty to be learned from this it's definitely one of my favourite scenes in the film as well. Yeah, he's, yeah. he's just such an he's such an interesting kind of guy to look at. Um, and I remember seeing him in Fast Time at Ridgemont High and like One Crazy Summer, I think it was. And he was always kind of there in the background. And it's he, nice to see him have a bit more screen time. And then he goes on to be one of my all-time favourite henchmen in The Last Boy Scout. He just always seems to pop up in these kind of 90s indie comedies and, and just elevates whatever he's in. He's, he was a really good screen presence. The other actor in the film who was... Was, you know, different from the main core group of characters was Kevin Kilmer playing Officer Dean. Now, is it just me <laughs> or when you first saw him, you thought, oh, Huey Lewis has got a part in this film. He looked to me like Huey Lewis. <laughs> Not far off. Yeah, yeah. I can totally see that. He provides the great running gag of the film where he's trying to get in with the kids by saying, listen, you think I didn't want to drink a bunch of beer and piss in somebody's pool when I was your age? Hell, he used to call me Quick Dick Dean. I was, I was just going to say, I was just going to talk about the cast briefly, looking at the people in this. It, it's interesting that pretty much nobody went on to uh, greater heights after this. The only person who um, is probably really recognisable. Having said, you know, that a lot of the characters, a lot of the actors look familiar, but I think it's because a lot of them spent the 90s and 2000s doing episodic TV. Mm. Pretty much everyone who's in this film has been in an episode of CSI at some point. 
But the only guy who really went on to do more work was um, Clifton. Well, he's credited as Clifton Gonzalez Gonzalez, who plays Tack, who's, uh, again, another fun, interesting character. He's been in a ton of stuff, hasn't he? He was in the, the latest Tarantino film, which is kind of interesting. So it's and again, you look at him now and he's got a very recognisable face, a real sort of character actor type but um yeah most of them it's like oh okay they were in three episodes of that and one episode of that and that's pretty much it that's one of the things i like about films from this period is that it's just a cast of unknowns and for mm. some like you say it's their only meal ticket and yeah yeah i wonder what they think about it now because i, I did actually try and do quite a bit of research into in, into the film and, and the history of it and met quite a lot of dead ends that's why when morris said at the start of the show um he read something with michael coplo i think it was I heard an interview with him, and he, he said like a, there a few interesting little tidbits that he revealed in uh, the making of the film. I mean, okay, so coming back to Tack, as you say, like the one actor who sort of went on to be quite recognisable, he has always maintained that even though he's sort of gone on to make films that people know him for better. But he's always gone and said, this was the film that put him on the map. Now, this is a film that there was a whole bunch of studio politics and it came as a surprise to Michael Coppolo that this didn't actually make it out into the cinema. Because, you know, of course, you know, later on, Richard Linklater did get to have his film put in the cinemas and you know, became this big cult film. But they, this went after a time straight to VHS. Of course, it became a big cult film on the home video market but for reasons that he was unsure about it never got a cinema run and you sort of wonder would these people have gone on to do other things or different things or more recognizable thing, yeah. if mm. they ha if it did have that cinema release it it didn't one of the things as he he said was you know, not only did clifton collins acknowledge that this film was you know his entry into the film market and something that he always recognized and had good memories of but on social media if people behave in ways that he doesn't like, he calls them worms. Fuck you, fuck the worms! So at least from what I understand from you know, the limited things that Michael Coppolo mentioned in this interview, it seems that people did have some level of fondness for it. So a couple of other really interesting tidbits that he made known. As I mentioned before, this was based on a 1991 student film. Don't remember if he said it was UCLA, but I'm going to say that that's where it was. And in that student film, the only two actors that made it from that student film to the full-length feature film was Coppolo, although, mind you, he had to audition several times before he was confirmed as being in the feature film. But the other one was Renee Allman, who is set okay. in, the, in the credits as Renee Ammon, who plays Lainey, the object of every one's lust in this film the other interesting thing okay so there's a bit of a spoiler alert but it doesn't really matter the other running gag in this film is hey i hear that they live over by the frankie avalon place so at the <laughs> end we get this wonderful cameo from frankie avalon saying i hear there's a shitload of fine chicks down there so the actor who they had originally intended to play the Frankie Avalon part was William Shatner. <laughs> now, I love what Frankie Avalon does in that, but when I think about William Shatner doing that part, I think, mind blown, I think it would have been fantastic because, as we know, in recent years, Shatner has not been above taking the piss out of himself. And I think he's done a, a great job with just two lines. In fact, they might have even written more for him 
if it had been in that film. It would have been the Charlton Heston Wayne's World 2 moment. There we go. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. i got to be honest, I, I can see where William Shatner chasing after some 17-year-old girls as well. That, that <laughs> would not surprise me in the slightest. <laughs> Another sort of film genre, if you want to call it, or sub-sub-genre, that this fits into quite nicely would be the one-night movie. I mean, there are a bunch of films that take place over the course of a day, but there's something even more special, I think, about the one-night film because it seems something more dangerous. And it's always like someone trying to get to someone, uh, like in Miracle Mile. But I think two other films which stand out in my mind as a good comparison for this is After Hours and The Warriors. So in both of those films, you've got characters who go somewhere, they end up in a dangerous situation, and they have, they're desperate to get back home by the end of the film. The Stone Age isn't quite like that. They're desperate to stay where they are until they've achieved their mission. <laughs> but like After Hours and like The Warriors, this is a series of set pieces that sort of add up to a really, really good overall movie. So in the Stone Age, the things that go wrong for them that they have to, before they meet their target, is having they have the wrong booze, so they've got to go out and get the right booze. They're chased by an angry homeowner for trying to get it on in his swimming pool. They're chased by Tack and beaten up by his mates, Stealing the chicks, allegedly. Worming their chicks. You've got to get the lingo right. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Crump's brother. We haven't even explained who Crump was or Crump's brother was. <laughs> it's a, it happened in one night film. And like your comparisons that you said, like Miracle Mile, it's the end of the world. You have After Hours, which is just a series of incredibly stressful set pieces. Whereas this, there's two underlying threats in the film. And that is Crump's brother, who was introduced at the start with no context whatsoever. Just that <laughs> he's a bit of an arsehole. And then you've got the dad coming home. They're the only two threats in the films. And they're mentioned a handful of times. If that, it just the reliance on moving the plot along isn't based around threat it's just a race around this may yeah, or may not yeah. happen at some point it's, it's more goofy than threatening yes absolutely yeah I'll tell you another uh, one crazy night film which you may laugh at me for uh, making the comparison but I think you could say adventures in babysitting as well well isn't uh, Joe's in that isn't he isn't I, I think he is isn't he credits? I think you're yeah I think you're right oh don't no it's don't tell baby don't tell mum the babysitter oh okay oh, yeah sorry but yeah similar thing you know a series of set pieces where people are trying to get from point A to point B or from point A or back from point B to point A or what have you over the course of one evening yeah as I said this isn't really about that because they don't want to leave they just want to do what they got, do what they got to do before they'll allow themselves to leave but by the time they do leave and spoiler alert but it's a comedy and you know it's 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 more about what happens along the way but by the time they do leave there is some sense of relief that everything at least from hub's perspective everything is behind them jill's father is behind them crump's brother is behind them and they can go back but you get that sense of relief like you do in 
after hours and the warriors where the characters eventually do make it back to where they started but as i think you pointed out james there's never the same sense of danger because to be honest with you when crump's brother comes into it and when jill's father comes into it it's more of a surprise yes they are alluded to earlier on in the film but it's never occurring to me in my mind oh they'll be coming into the film at a later stage i probably should have but you know, hell, I didn't know this film was set in the 70s, so I'm really not thinking terribly much. <laughs> well, again, I, I, without giving too much away, when they do both show up, it's all dealt with fairly quickly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, There's it's no over real, now. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, again, they're just more of a catalyst for what finally happens at the end as opposed to being a large part of the ending, as it were. So, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm not going to say it was it was an underwhelming introduction by any stretch. I think it, it suits the film fine. But yeah, sure. Yeah, it would have hurt to have a couple of interactions with Crump's brother um, beforehand, because the deciding factor is, is that Crump's out of jail or is on probation. And he knows of these two chicks who are hanging out of this house and word spreads around and they dupe Crump into going to some kind of later hose at night. Is yeah. it awesome? Yes, like that. Yeah. But, yeah. Yeah. Let's say if, <laughs> If he's this kind of like badass, then it, I don't think it would have killed the film to have just a couple of you know yeah. comedy interacts with him uh, to make that kind of end appearance a bit more uh, funny. That's it. There, <laughs> it just kind there of could happens, have been like, a few little scenes throughout the movie of him trying to work his way to to find the chicks and um, you know maybe um, keep getting jinked again, you know, yeah, yeah, or just you know hitting a few people or getting into various scrapes or again just to sort of increase that threat. And you could have had some fun with it as well. But like you say, I mean, it doesn't really hurt the film that not happening but it, when you do get to that part at the end where uh, he shows up and the father shows up it almost feels like a bit of an afterthought doesn't it yes still no less fun for all of that though yeah absolutely the other thing which we sort of alluded to a little bit earlier but there are probably like a ton of films out there that have used also sprach zarathustra plus guys dressed as apes to allude to 2001 but I think I have to say that this is probably my favourite 2001 parody. Joe, he's getting philosophical, you know, pretty much the way how, but in a more entertaining way than Pink gets philosophical towards the end of Dazed and Confused. But, you know, Joe is just talking as a stoner about the history, you know, how he thinks about the eyeball. He was, he's shot in the eye by a laser at a Blue Oyster Cult gig. And then we see him watching himself eating a burrito and spilling the beer and lying in bed as an old man. And as the moon child with a baby bottle, probably loaded with schnapster. No, it's it's got the uh, Ox Forty Five. Oh is, right, yeah, the, yes, the beer they all drink in it, isn't it? But only if it's from the Tolls. Yes, <laughs> and it's called. It apparently, it's called Ox Forty Five. They were going to use Colt Forty Five, but Colt Forty Five didn't want to be associated with with a film where characters drank and drove. Right, okay, so I was going to ask whether whether any of these beverages were real beverages. That's why it's Ox 45 and not Colt 45. But well, I had completely forgotten about the two, that, that how, considering yeah. it, you know, the, the, that end scene of, or the, the, the kind of 2001 homage is such a big part of it. But it, it's kind of funny that we, we've kind of broken down the character of Joe, even though there's not much to him, but talking about him as the kind of the four light, the lifer. His visions of the future is eating burritos, drinking beer. <laughs> <laughs> you know, 
he knows where he's going uh, in life. He's going to yeah, end up as yeah. like a mechanic or something. Um, just, you know, <laughs> we still be going to gigs at 50. Nothing wrong with that. Something that pre-COVID and post-COVID we all identify with. Yeah, absolutely. Holy shit. I hope I'm still going to gigs when I'm 50. <laughs> mm. Oh, of course. You're only, what, 25, are you, James? I'm, I'm pushing 40. Oh, Push okay. oh, you're a child. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> Hey, man, she doesn't look like that chick on the Virgin Killers album. Yeah, Tack. Yeah, this one's Hoagly. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, man, the other one's the boxy one. You sort of mentioned this. Uh, we, we were chatting off the air beforehand, and you, you kind of mentioned how there are certain elements of the film that you could probably look at today and, and say we're a little bit sexist that maybe push the envelope a little bit too far and you know some of the characters attitudes and, and so forth and I don't know what do you guys think about that I think and again this feeds into the kind of non-descriptive time of, of when the film comes out obviously mm-hmm. you know we've said it's yeah. 70s but I don't think anybody in the 70s spoke like these characters did um, no. it's got that no. very kind of valley girl LA bro sensibility because obviously there's certain words cuss words that obviously have, don't fly today at all yeah, and it's yeah. frequently throughout the film and yeah I don't think anybody in the 70s spoke like these guys did and it's taking modern dialogue and putting it into this kind of timeline and I'd, I think it definitely loses a bit of its charm on that front but like I say it, it doesn't affect the film overall but mm-hmm. yeah the use of language is is just trying to it's of its time not the time of the film yeah that, that's essentially what you were saying as well wasn't it Morris the film obviously is not one that's going to be made today you know the the sexual politics are very very different and it's obviously improved but to maybe have made a film like this and have put I don't know different dialogue look not being American not having lived through that period I genuinely can't say what the dialogue would have been but to have had different dialogue that was going to be more sensitive or different situations you don't have the film uh, it'd be yeah. fairly disingenuous to make it any more polite than what it was and I know that like on a lot of the the Warner Brothers DVDs, and we were speaking about this before we started recording, Bernie, that mm-hmm. uh, I think it's a Warner Brothers films that come out on, I'm not sure, Warner Archive, where something that's got problematic subject matter from a 21st century perspective, they have something that says, please this, watch this film in the context under which it was made. This is not condoning. This is not approving. It's just is what it is. And there are some films which may be more problematic than others, but this is a film that at its heart I found charming. And yes, there are issues and there are things that we wouldn't say, but even by the end, Joe has come full circle. We get this, uh, as I alluded to before, with a nice symmetry where Hubs is beating up on Joe in the car for liking Mm. a song as sensitive as Don't Fear the Reaper or musically less heavy than the rest of their music. And then at the end, we get Joe sort of beating up on Hubs for being basically a a sexist prick over Jill. And he's realised, hey, I have feelings for her. And you know what? That's fine. That's good. So there's something of that which maybe does speak to a 21st century audience. This is a story about these characters. It's not condoning them. It's just saying this is what it was like. So overall, I just found these characters. And you said before yourself, Bernie, that really apart from Joe and Jill, and even they had some issues, but 
none of the characters in this are really that likable. Yeah, it's kind of the point, isn't it? Yeah, that, yeah. It, that is kind of the point, as opposed to coming back to Dazed and Confused, which is saying, right, well, this is how it was, and you're supposed to like them, apart from, I think it was Ben Affleck in that film. Yeah, yeah. Takes that paddle thing a little bit too far and a little bit too violent, but all the rest of it, yeah, yeah, we'd beat each other up over the arse, and that was a rite of passage, and hey, wasn't that great? And that film, I have a bigger problem with that than anything in the Stoned Age. I like the Stoned Age, and if you're out there and you're a big fan of Dazed and Confused, more power to you. Don't write to me and curse me. I, I mean, <laughs> or, or whatever. But no, I I will watch. I will watch the Stoned Age again. And this is something when I watched the original trailer, I didn't think I would do. But I really like this a lot. Any final thoughts on the film, gentlemen? Yeah, the, the, just kind of two closing things. Really talking about the the, the, the time period again, and it's, I myself, uh, even as a Blue Oyster Cult fan, found don't fear the reaper to me like oh come on guys like you know it's completely overplayed now but when i saw it live it was a beautiful experience to hear them play that when i saw them live for the first time but even in the context of the film is that you know hopes again we very eloquently calls it a pussy song but for many 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 years it was widely interpreted as being kind of like a pro-suicide song i know mm-hmm. it's very gross hmm. and dark subject but that's how it was and obviously again with the advent of, of the 80s and the the, the sanity satanic panic it got lumped in with a lot of that obviously not as much as like suicide solution or, or the or the priest songs as well and the, and the other thing was <laughs> you know they keep on saying she looks like the chick from the virgin killers album and it's like guys come on <laughs> it's, that's not a chick <laughs> yeah <laughs> just yeah yeah it, it, they're trying to pass that off as, as kind of being the norm whereas now it's like you guys you can't even get that album cover anymore it's it's that frowned upon would smell the glove be available in 2021 <laughs> <laughs> yeah we need a, we being need a, sexy yeah that's the thing. <laughs> the s- I don't see many people that I know of talking about it. Uh, like I, I just put it in a, in a WhatsApp group before the chat and just saying, oh, I'm, t- I'm talking to the um, CA guys tonight about the Stone Age. And it's like, yeah, I've never seen it, never really heard of it. And when you look on Letterbox, and I think there's only one person I follow out of a few hundred that has ever watched it. And mm-hmm. I, I, it's never going to get the reappraisal because I don't think it necessarily deserves reappraisal. But I think it's a very good kind of band oriented film and, and a good kind of obscure view. Of, of, of the 70s and, and kind of the underbelly of, of rock fans and what they got up to at the weekend. It's interesting because it's a, obviously it's a film, uh, we're not specifically about nostalgia, but it's a film supposedly set in a period, what, 20 years, 25 years before it was made, looking back at how people were uh, having fun, getting wasted, chasing chicks and so on. And, and I found watching it, it made me really nostalgic, but for that period in the early 90s where i was just renting films at the weekend so many sort of cheap low budget american indie films i you know from that period i sat through it and this really kind of took me back to that so in a weird way it did make me nostalgic but not for the time it was depicting Mm. so uh, i I found that kind of interesting just you know the way film stock in the 90s looked or the the way certain you know the fonts that are used in the uh, credits and just all those kind of things the way things were lit in the 90s and so forth it's just all those little things you don't necessarily think of but they you know they add up to something larger and they're, they're you know they're part of 
of that uh, I don't know they can sort of transport you in a way and you know I'm a terribly nostalgic person anyway it doesn't take much I, I found that really interesting and, and quite sort of charming about the film and the other thing I was going to mention is uh, we sort of alluded to it throughout our conversation but the soundtrack to this is fucking great they just chose all the exact right songs you know there's Sabbath obviously Blue Oyster Cult and of course now I forget all the other bands that are in there Focus Focus yeah 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 <laughs> <laughs> but I think you can tell that you know that they're uh, they spent the money on the on the right songs. The music rights can be super expensive, and uh, particularly nowadays, I guess maybe it wasn't quite so bad back then. They chose the right stuff. It made perfect sense, and it made for a great soundtrack as well. Maybe think, shit, I've got to dig out my Sabbath LPs. I haven't listened to that for ages. That's something that you've got to think about. That's what's really changed in the 25-odd years since the film was made, music publishing rights. Because, Mm -hmm. um, I mean, we discussed Rock and Roll High School on the show a long time ago. And when you think about all the artists in that, and that was a Roger Corman film. And this film, not a Roger Corman film, but it's obviously a film with a tight budget. And... How the hell do you get Black Sabbath? I mean, mm. nowadays, to put Paranoid in a film, it'd cost more than the budget of more than three or four Stone Ages. I'm sure of it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, easily. So, uh, and, you know, I'm not saying that you know, the artists or the songwriters aren't deserving of, their, of the funds. That's what they rely on. Absolutely, they should. But I do think it's somewhat of a shame that it seems like more the legal fraternity has taken this on. And it's more about the lawyers. It's about, yeah, the more people getting their cut, isn't it? Right, absolutely, rather than doing the right thing by the songwriter. But yeah, this film, it does have an incredible soundtrack. And were it to be made as a nostalgia piece in 2021, you wouldn't have any of these songs. Yeah, I'm just looking at it now. You've got Folk Hat, you've got uh, Mark Bolan, you've got Wild Cherry, Deep Purple... You got Montrose, more folk hat, Ted Nugent, a couple of Sabbath tracks, and a couple of Blue Oyster Cult tracks. Sorry, James, I cut you off there, and I just did it no, again. It's, it's absolutely fine. <laughs> and, and again, it's the same with with Days and Confused because if you think back to the bands that had their kind of pomp in the seventies, and, and very few kind of made it through and continue to be sex successful. You obviously have your Fleetwood Macs and your Eagles, your Elton Johns, but the bands like Black Sabbath shouldn't really be as big as they are now compared to in the seventies. Because if you think there's the tail off in quality of albums in the eighties and then the nineties was just like completely barren. Everyone was going solo and going their own way. And I think that films like the stone age and days to confuse kind of re-energize this love for these great hits. Like you say, like paranoid. And then you have the advent of, of, of Ozfest and Ozzy's now this like absolute metal megastar. And these films definitely helped along with that kind of reinvention and like a younger generation finding out about these bands because they are timeless classic hits even the fog hat one is you know it's, it's still think, a good song. Um, i think you can say because of, you know the, the kind of grunge era which this is you know this was sort of running this film was made during that kind of period again there was suddenly uh popular bands were name checking 70s bands that it just hadn't been called alike for a decade you know so yeah. i think it's all part and parcel of the same thing and yeah absolutely like neil young with pearl jam and, and stuff yeah totally like yeah oh yeah, yeah. Oh, 
All right. Well, I think that pretty much concludes our discussion of the Stone Age. If you hadn't quite got the impression, I think it's a film that we all give a thumbs up to. Yeah, if, definitely. So this film, I think, is showing on Tubi. So that's one way to search it out. I think there are incredibly overpriced DVDs of it available on eBay. But uh, it's available on Tubi. And I don't know, I don't have Prime anymore. Is it available on that? I did watch it on Amazon Web Rip. Yeah, it was on Prime. Okay. okay. I'm just, I wonder if it's on YouTube as well. Probably not. But, uh, no, I'm just, it's not, no. It's not, no. Okay, I was just going to check. But it is, as I said, on Tubi. And now you're indicating it's on Prime. So you have your options. And we recommend that you do. It is a lot of fun. Thank you so very much, James, for uh, suggesting this and joining us for an episode of See Here. This really was a lot of fun. I'm glad you suggested this because I don't think I would have seen this otherwise. So huge thanks to you. Thank you. Like I said, it was it was different. So I'm, I'm glad you uh, accepted the different route. And, uh, <laughs> this is not the first time that we've done a show that wasn't directly about music. It was more about the culture around music. We've done a few of those, but you know that's still fits into our brief. And yeah, you know, still valid. It. It's definitely. our show. It's our show. We can do what we want. So you want both set the camp. So uh, if people want to go find The Iron Sequel, how can they do it and what do you got coming up? Spotify, iTunes, um, The Iron Sequel podcast. Um, if you Stitcher and Podbean, it's the same. Uh, I am at Blazing Magnums on Twitter as well. I talk a, a whole host of nonsense on there, just not necessarily film. It's just a private Twitter account, but feel free to come and have a chat. I'm kind of, it's a bit of a different approach this year because uh, as, as I said at the start, it, it can be when you're doing something on your own and you're constantly on the look out for guests the well does get a little bit dry after a while because i've had a few disappointing bales but coming up i'm gonna have james branscombe who runs cinematic void out in la they're a very kind of eurocentric horror film night uh, i have a friend called rachel nisbet who is a prominent yellow writer um, we're gonna talk demons wow. too oh my lord mike, wow mike from the projection booth has recently been talking with him as well and we are weighing up possibly superman 2 or the color of money two films which i would <laughs> never have imagined covering that saying that crocodile dundee 2 with with bernie and um, <laughs> and uh, the rest of it we'll just see kind of see how it goes obviously balancing work life home life and, and podcasting as well there's going to be a few little um periods of hiatus here and there but yeah people seem to like it and I'll, I'll continue doing it for as long as people enjoy listening i've listened to the episode that you two did about crocodile dundee 2 which was i think a second date film for me so i had some yeah, level of, told me that. Yeah. I think some level of nostalgia. Not a film I particularly cared for, but I really, really, really enjoyed the episode. And I'm so happy that you've got Mike White of The Projection Booth, a, a, a huge friend of our show. Uh, I, I definitely look forward to hearing Superman 2 and The Color of Money. Wow. That'll be, that'll be two great shows. Really looking forward to that. So I'll put links up to the program in the show notes, and we'd love to have you back at a future stage. What else can we tell you if you want to, if you want to uh, join the Facebook group you want to make suggestions of your own or talk about music related films you go to facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash see here podcast uh, we are part of the pantheon podcast network so if you uh, go to pantheonpodcasts.com then you can check out all the other 65 or so odd podcasts that are on the network you're bound to find some podcast that's talking about music in a fashion to which uh, you will find attractive to you that's all we do in Pantheon 
uh, music-related podcasts, and uh, that's the growth area, not true crime. So, um, <laughs> yeah, bloody true crime podcast. It's music podcasts, people. You want to write an email? Seeherepodcast at gmail.com. Instagram, we are at Podcast. so you can just search Podcast and uh, follow us on there. I'll briefly talk about what we got coming up in episode 82. Uh, this will be an interesting one. So we have a fellow coming on the show. His name is Colm Ford. Now, that is how you pronounce it, Colm, C-O-L-M, I presume. Mm-hmm. Right. So Colm Ford is the curator for what was originally a film festival. And it may still be a film festival, but is also a streaming site. And it's a streaming site that is right up our alley. All they have are music-related films. It's called Doc and Roll. So I think it's basically uh, music documentaries. So not necessarily music narratives like what we just discussed, but yeah, all music documentaries, a streaming site. Holy shit, that is for us. So I reached out to Colm and asked whether he'd like to talk on the program, and I guess it seemed like a perfect fit. So we're going to be talking with about the festival and about the streaming service and what some of his favourite documentaries are and what can he recommend. So we're really looking forward to that one. That should be it. So uh, hopefully we get uh, Tim back on board for that one. But uh, if not, he'll definitely be back in March. We miss him very much. So I think with that, we will say, look after yourself. Don't worm anyone's checks. Be nice. (laughs) Wear a mask. Wash your hands. Social distance. Think about other people. Yeah, and and wash your hands and snaps (laughs) it. Sorry, just uh, I'm totally ballsing up your outro here, but we we didn't mention it. But (laughs) I love throughout the film there are various points when they go like the snapster and someone flicks it and it goes ping. (laughs) (laughs) That was a nice little touch. It was (laughs) trying to make it a thing. Clearly trying to make it a thing. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I don't think that was the best running gag of the film. But uh, you, you think I didn't like talking about movies like this on podcasts? Hell, there was a time where they used to call me music movie loving Morris. (laughs) (laughs) No, I think I'll edit that bit out. Yeah, let's quit while we're ahead, eh? All right. Look after each other, people, and uh, we'll speak to you next month on See Here Episode Eighty Two. All the best. Cheers. Bye. Bye. Prescription is more cowbell. What would you do to achieve the American dream? The big house, the happy family, the money. 911, what's your emergency? Would you put in the hours? Would you take a big swing? What's the problem? What's the problem? Would you lie? Would you cheat? Would I shop? Would I shop? Would you kill? Yes. I'm dead. My mom is right there. From Airship, the studio behind American Scandal, comes a new true crime history podcast. 
I'm Jeremy Schwartz, and I'll be taking you inside the minds of some of our most notorious felons and outlaws, exploring the dark side of the American dream. In my new show, American Criminal, you'll meet the picture-perfect brothers who kill their parents, the thief who stole babies, the crypto king who siphoned off billions and plenty more. From assassins and gangsters to killers and con artists, whatever the case, whoever the criminal, you don't know the full story until now. Don't miss the debut season of American Criminal, the Menendez Brothers, beginning February 29th. Listen wherever you get your podcasts, or to get early ad-free access to the entire season first, plus hundreds of other ad-free history podcast episodes, subscribe at intohistory.com.